Welcome to episode 191 of the Women of the Military podcast. This week my guest is Jill Chambers. Jill knew at age 10 that she wanted to join the military, and although she thought she would follow her father's career and join the Air Force, she ended up joining the Army after completing junior ROTC and then receiving an Army ROTC scholarship. Through her time in the military, she saw many changes, supported Desert Storm from Korea, and was at the Pentagon on September 11th. We really dove into not only what it was like to be at the Pentagon, but the aftermath effect of PTSD and what being at the Pentagon after September 11th happened. So it's a really great episode, and we focused a lot on mental health and PTSD, and it's fitting. Yesterday was PTSD Awareness Day, and if you've been a long-time listener, you know how important mental health is, so I'm really glad I got to do this interview, and I hope that you enjoy it. Welcome to the show, Jill. I'm so excited to have you here. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. So let's start with why did you decide to join the military? That's a great question. I actually decided when I was 10 years old that I was going to join the military. My dad was a career Air Force officer, and he had five brothers that were also serving in the military. I loved the, at least the first 10 years of my life as military brat traveling around with my dad, my brother, and my mom. And it was just, I admired my dad so much and I loved what he stood for when he talked about serving his country that um, I just jumped right in and said, yep, this is what I'm going to do. So since 10 years of age, that was my plan. And did you always know what branch of the military you wanted to join or did that come later? No, I, I, well, I thought the Air Force, you know, just because of my dad, but I ended up getting an Army ROTC scholarship. And you can't just change uh, branches like that. So my dad, who was terribly surprised that I was joining the Army, was still very proud. But uh, that was Army, you know, they paid my way. So that's exactly what I did. That makes sense. That makes sense. Because you're going to get your schooling paid for and the Army's going to do it, then that's the branch to, to join. Exactly. Yeah. No arguing about that. So it was just the right thing to do. You're right. So... Let's talk a little bit about ROTC and what the process was like. Did you apply for a scholarship in high school? Did you learn about it in college? How did you find out about ROTC and get the scholarship to go to school? Well, that's a great question, too. I actually was in junior ROTC in high school. I was one of the, you know, they just opened that up for women in 1974. So I was a sophomore in high school and the first class that would actually have women be able to start in 74. I graduated high school in 76. And from there, you know, I love junior ROTC so much. Once I started college and joined ROTC there, you know, the professors of military science were really awesome where I went to school and they encouraged me right away. Okay, get in on this, you know, quickly sign up, do all the paperwork. Let's get you an ROTC scholarship. So they really took me under their wing and were just some great guides for me through the whole ROTC process. And and boom, next thing I know, I have the scholarship. And was the JROTC Army as well? Yes, it was. And even though my dad was like, okay, um, you do Army ROTC as, you know, in high school, that doesn't mean as much. But they didn't have Air Force ROTC where I went to high school. So <laughs> I think I was just destined to do that. Yeah, that makes sense. So you got an Army ROTC scholarship and you went to school. Did you face any challenges while you were going through the ROTC program? I mean, you said women were just barely allowed to participate in junior ROTC. I'm guessing that ROTC would be similar. It was similar. There certainly weren't a lot of women, but you know what? I didn't face any problems at all. 
you know, I didn't try and be, you know, one of the guys. I was just me, Jill, um, participating in something that I truly enjoyed. And I don't know, maybe I was just lucky, but uh, the teams that I've been around were awesome. Um, the men that were in the ROTC program, some of them still from college, I stay in touch with. You know, we all, you know, graduated together and went on our separate ways, but, you know, a lot of us stayed together. So I really didn't face any challenges, you know, big challenges like that it was good team effort all the way. That's great to hear. I had a really good experience in the military as well. And I sometimes people ask me and I'm like, no, I, I just had good people that I worked with. And it was really a supportive environment. I think it's sometimes people just have really bad experiences. And then other people have good experiences. And it just depends on who you meet and where you end up. I completely agree. I'm so glad to hear you say that you had a great experience too. That's, that's really nice. You know, there's challenges, but you know, nothing drastic. I I would look upon all of that as a really wonderful journey in my life. Yeah. So let's talk about you going on active duty and what your career field was and if you went to training or if you went to base first. So what that first year in the army was like. Sure. Well, once actually I graduated from college, I, they actually gave me, an, uh, well, I asked for an education of lay. So I went ahead and got a master's degree before I went straight into the army. And that degree was in human relations and yeah, uh, well, public administration and human resources, because I really wanted to be an adjutant general corps officer to do personnel and work in that field. I just, I, I liked all of that, everything that was revolved around, you know, taking care of people. So once I graduated from graduate school, lo and behold, the Army in their infinite wisdom branched me as an ordnance officer to go blow things up. <laughs> so needless to say, it was my first attempt at going back to the Army management, personnel management then in D.C. and say, man, you guys just spent an awful lot of money for me to go to graduate school for this particular degree and get really good in human resources. Do you think I'd be better suited as an adjutant general corps officer? And lo and behold, I got a response back and they did branch me in in adjutant general corps. And I was sent off then right away to the officer basic course at Fort Ben Harrison for the adjutant general corps. So that started the whole thing. That's funny. And it sounds like the military. They're like, we're going to pay for you to go do this. And then we're going to try and have you do something completely different. And then they're like, like, you're like, remember why you paid for this? And then they're like, oh, yeah, okay, let's let's do that. So that's kind of funny. So after you went to that training, what was it like to go off into the army? And I mean, college is kind of like you're on your own, but you're not really. So what was it like to like be in the army, moving around as you go to all the different trainings? What was that experience like? Well, you know, I think I was lucky because I had it already sort of in my blood on what it's like to move and make friends and and get along with people. And just, you know, I, I think most of my life I've just been happily in the flow. I mean, like, what's next? Okay, um, this is a new situation. What can I get out of this? What are the opportunities here? And what friends can I make? I've kept a positive attitude about a lot of the, this through my career. So even starting out right after, you know, then getting out of graduate school, going to the basic course. And then my first assignment at Fort Bragg, again, lucky, lucky me falling into the 18th Personnel Administration Battalion with such an amazing group of quality service members and, you know, men and women and the young soldiers and the old soldiers. And, you know, the older ones took me under their wing and the younger ones, it was fun to start to learn how to really mentor them and help them and, and solve problems and get them on the right track professionally and sometimes even personally. So it was a, it was through every single PCS move I had, 
I've just, I've gone in with that, that type of attitude, never really worried or concerned more with eyes wide open and okay, what is this adventure going to bring? So I, you know, I guess it's just the way that I, uh, I looked at everything and it certainly helped and I really loved it. I think that's what made my career so much fun. Yeah. Did you join, you said you got delayed. I was like, was it like a 1982 when you went active duty? Right, exactly. Yes, I graduated from uh, Old Dominion University with my graduate degree in 1982 and went right off to the officer basic course. So I've done enough interviews with people that I used to think there was nothing going on in the world in the 80s. And I know that's not true. So was there any situations or experiences that happened that you want to focus on between like 82 and 91 would be like the Gulf War? Yeah, you know, it was a pretty quiet time, you know, during those years. So a lot of the training, you know, even if you're a personnel officer, you still need to do training to always prep if you're going to deploy. So we had a lot of those exercises. We'd go to the field and we'd do our missions and practice what we would do in wartime. So we were prepped, but up until 1991, really, there was no big major deployments, at least on my end. Yeah. And then in 1991, the Gulf War happened. Were you deployed for that or did you support it from the home station? Yes. And that during that time, I was actually in Korea. So we were all at, at that point, once that started, everybody who was in Korea, at least we were frozen there. We couldn't couldn't leave. Even if your D-Rose was up, you're staying. So we did a lot of support missions in terms of, you know, whether people were on their way to Korea Again, as a personnel officer, you're doing reassignments and, you know, staging folks according to numbers. So we were in a lot of support of that. Yeah, that sounds interesting. I didn't really realize how important like all the back home support was for like a war that's happening until I deployed to Afghanistan. And like I went to Manus and like we in process there and then we went to Bagram and we in process there. And then there were people back at home station training us. And so like I feel like there's so many different aspects and a lot of times people only think about the people out fighting the battle and not all the support systems, both home and you were in Korea and other places around the world that are supporting to make the war happen. Yeah. Um, and good for, you know, thank you for bringing that up because there is a lot of support that goes on behind the scenes um, other than those who have deployed in the war fighters. So it does take a team, right? It really does. It really does. So I, I wanted to ask, did you notice a change in the army? Cause you said that you were doing a lot of exercises and training so that you would be ready for war. And then you were in during a desert storm. And so did the military or the army make changes on like how they trained or was it pretty much the some similar type of exercises? At that point, it was really similar type of exercises. You know, things were certainly advancing from the, from different wars previous but not as dramatic as they do as you move through the 90s and into the 2000s, as you're well aware of, and our ability to train soldiers with much more, the soldiers even have much more information. And it's not crossing a line and, oh, there's the enemy. The enemy's everywhere. I mean, it's at one point, you know, we started to learn that even as an adjutant general corps officer, you always think, oh, you know, we're behind the lines. We're, We're way back. Nobody will ever get to us. Well, it doesn't work that way anymore. And we saw that change over the years, especially going into the 2000s, obviously. Um, everybody's at risk and everybody participates and nobody's necessarily safe. Yeah, that's for sure. 
Yeah. And I think even I did some research a couple of years ago when I was doing a Memorial Day episode, and I was surprised that two women were killed back like far away from the fighting in a rocket attack. And so like that was something that happened in the 90s. And I'm sure but it was like they were back support. You would think that they were safe because they were far enough away. But that's the reality of war is that no one's really safe because you're in a war zone and you don't know, like, especially when there was a lot of incoming when you in the Afghanistan and Iraq war. And so it was like, even if you were on the base, you weren't safe. Exactly. And that became, that's the norm now, right? I mean, we're all, you, you, once you deploy, you're a target. So you really just have to have to know your, know your job and know how to protect yourself and protect your comrades too. Yeah. So let's talk about between the end of desert storm and before September 11th. And you said that as you said, even like before September 11th, you said that as the nineties progressed, that things started to change. So what sort of things did you see change? And then we can talk about where you were on September 11th and what happened after that. Sure. Well, honestly, for me, I, you know, I was not in a force community anymore. As we progressed into the nineties, I left Fort Eustis and ended up in Washington, DC. So now I'm at PERSCOM, which is Army Headquarters, um, doing officer assignments. So it, as far as training goes, honestly, I didn't see a whole bunch of that. Again, you know, now we're little green suitors and we're, we're in offices, not out in the field training. Um, it wasn't until, uh, you know, I moved over to from PERSCOM, which is in D.C., over to the Pentagon in 98 and started working there. And again, you know, it's the Pentagon. Well, that's a very safe place, don't you think? <laughs> and what, you know, of course, three years later, we had the attacks on the Pentagon on 9-11. And I was actually the military secretary for the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff at the time. Well, I guess we need to stop and talk about that day because you were at the Pentagon on 9-11. And I've talked to a few people who were there and they always have such interesting stories about either like not even knowing what was happening because they were on the other side of the building or uh, or being closer to the incident or going in after and helping with support. So what was it like to be there and what was your experience like? Yes. Well, um, that morning, actually, before everything turned drastic, I was actually escorting one of our generals to a meeting down the hall. And we got about halfway to where this meeting was supposed to be. And someone yelled at him and said, get back to your office and look at the TV. So we turned around and hustled back and got him back to the office. And he saw the first plane had gone into the World Trade Center. And he turned to me and said, wow, that must have been like a little Piper jet, really, you know, miscalculated. And I agreed with him. And I said, come on, sir, let's go. You're already late for the meeting. And we walk out. We're halfway down the hall again. And of course, then there's the second plane. And then of course, we knew something terrible was happening in the world. So dropped him off and went back to my office. And again, I was the military secretary at the time. So um, my, my specific job was taking care of the 300 people that worked directly for the chairman, whether it was his legal guys, his public relations guys, his public affairs guys, all of those folks, his history folks, Anybody that worked directly for him, I was responsible for taking care of them, um, which also included uh, making sure that uh, once a month we did these safety drills, which nobody participated in because these are all, I was a uh, lieutenant colonel at the time, but these are all colonels and one, two, three, four-star generals. And they're like, yeah, 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 just mark me down that I went outside and participated. Well, on that particular day, I'm, you know, I've gone back to my office and we have a TV in our 
our particular office and my two sergeants were looking at the TV and escorting some of the uh, chairman's dining room folks also worked for me and they came across the hall and they're all these young kids and they're all in a panic. Oh my gosh, ma'am, you know, these things happen in threes. <laughs> it's like, okay, now we're getting a little silly and a little ahead of ourselves. Just stop worrying. And lo and behold, minutes after one of the service members had said that, one of my sergeants in the office who was on the phone with another woman downstairs on the first floor, we were up on the second floor and in a different part of the Pentagon, looked at me and said, oh my God, ma'am, I was just talking to Mildred and all of a sudden I heard this boom and she's not there. And that's, you know, we all looked at each other at that point and it was just seconds later that the black smoke started just billowing around, obviously around the Pentagon and our, myself and my two sergeants, we got outside the building and looked around and you could actually touch the black smoke as soon as we got out of the building because we were on the E-ring. So it was just, you know, less than 50 yards for us to get out of the building. And we all, the three of us looked at each other and was like, okay, we got, something went wrong, but we got to go back in and account for these 300 people. So we knew where the staging area was. We found one person that knew where the staging area was, got that person there. And then the three of us went back inside and started getting the people out of their offices, getting them out of the building, getting them to the staging area. And, and that took, uh, that took almost three hours because some people ran the wrong way. Um, here's the good news. Out of all the people that work for the chairman, everyone was safe. So we all got out. Um, we were in, you know, the, the plane hit near corridors three, four, and five, and a little bit of six. And we were over in corridor eight. So again, we were able to account for everybody, get everybody out, then move everybody from the Pentagon way over to Crystal City. And we were there until about midnight, waiting for buses to come through to pick up people because you know, the metro wasn't moving. Nobody was allowed to go back to their cars, just trying to get people home. So we were we were able to accomplish all of that. And the next morning, we're we're back at the Pentagon. Some of us, not everybody. Uh, my team was because again, we worked for the chairman, and we needed to be there. And it was uh, it was horrific. A everything about that was horrific. And I'm just I'm, I'm glad again that all of our people that we were caring for were okay. But where the plane hit. The ground zero for that plane was actually in a G1 office where Lieutenant General Maud worked. Um, he was the only general that was killed. Um, he was the G1, so he was like the, the father of all of the Adjutant General Corps. And a lot of my friends were actually there because that's where their offices were, and, and many of them were killed that day. Yeah, that I mean, thank you for sharing that story. It, I mean, even though it's been so long, it's brings back so many memories of that day. I was in California, so my version of 9-11 is interesting because we knew that by the time I had woken up to get ready for school, they already knew that something was going on. The second plane had hit and it was interesting to hear it from people on the East Coast where it was like a normal day and then all of a sudden everything changed. And then just to hear about how you knew people who died and how quickly their life ended and nobody knew it was coming. And so I'm, so I'm sorry for the loss of friends and just thank you for sharing and being so open to share your experience. Oh, you're very welcome. Where in California were you? I'm from Fresno. So Okay. So you were in school that day? Yeah, I was a senior in high school. Got it. Yeah. So it hadn't even happened until you, before you even got to school, right? Three hour difference. Yeah, it happened. I think it happened at like nine. The first two towers were like nine and 
right. 9.30. So it was like 6 and 6.30. And my alarm went off at 6.30. And the radio, it was a radio alarm clock. And it, they weren't playing music. And they were talking. And I was like, what is going And they sounded scared. I remember waking up and them sounding scared. And that was where I was like, this doesn't make any sense. Because it's not like a news update. It was like they were scared and unsure. And that they were dealing with like what was happening and you could hear it in their voices from like the moment I woke up in the morning. Right. Did you end up going to school that day or did they cancel school? We had school, but we basically watched the TVs pretty much the whole day. And so we didn't, we were at school, but I don't think we really did. Yeah. Right. Okay. So September 11th happened and you were at the Pentagon and you were working to account for people and and I'm sure there was lots and lots of moving pieces and lots of things going on. When did life kind of get back to like a normal ops tempo or, or where that you guys started to move forward and uh, maybe have like a normal day of work at the Pentagon? Yeah, that took a couple of years, honestly. You know, they had us rotating. Not only was I the military secretary, but all, and this was all officers, everybody was manning either the director of the joint staff or in the chairman's office 24 seven. So we, you know, nobody, you know, we, we'd go home, but we were all on shifts. So it's not like the Pentagon ever shut down. And of course it took quite a long time to rebuild the Pentagon, get the smell out. It was, you could smell jet fuel every time you walked in that Pentagon for the longest time. And again, for the longest time, I mean, for months, it was, you know, usually in the Pentagon, it's hustle bustle, people talking, it's slightly noisy. There were days where you could just hear a pin drop because people were just walking around a little numb. And it didn't help at all that a couple of times after 9-11 that the alarm system would go off and just freaking people out. Again, you know, there's a little bit of post-traumatic stress in there like, oh my God, is this going to happen again? And we'd run, you know, run the drills and get everybody out. And it was all the, all of those that happened. And I would say it probably happened three, maybe four times in the course of two to three months. And, not, and it was, you know, nothing was, was happening except, you know, escalating the fear in a lot of people. And, you know, there's a lot of civilians that work in the Pentagon too, that didn't go through necessarily any kind of military training. I mean, some were, you know, retired and contractors and folks that work in there, but a lot of them weren't. And it's just, you know, they, they don't expect anything like that to happen when they go to work. Just like people in the World Trade Center would have had no idea that that would happen. So it, you know, it affects everybody differently, but it did, it took a couple years for everything to honestly get back to normal. Yeah, that's so insightful and something that I didn't even know. I guess I just figured, oh, a few months and then everything, but like the smell and like the reconstruction and like every, and even like, yeah. And the alarms going off and the fear that's, that's like so interesting. I haven't heard anyone talk about like after (laughs) working there. And so that's really interesting. Yeah, it was, um, yeah, it was interesting all throughout all of that. I can remember sometimes when, uh, the alarm actually went off the first time after 9-11. And we went around, you know, to get to get people out. And there were some people who were literally frozen in their tracks. They could not move. They were able to stand up from their desk. And we had to physically start to get their feet to move so we could actually get them out of the door. They just ended up in a daze. And again, part of that is, is uh, post-traumatic stress. It's, it's a real thing and it can affect people in very different ways. 
you know, because then there's others who they hear the alarm and they're out like a bullet out just out the door, but in sort of a manic way, not an organized, deliberate way. So you run the gamut from, you know, frozen still to shooting out like a star. (laughs) Yeah, that's true. And that's I think that's part of why it's so hard to explain like mental health challenges, because everybody's experience is different and everyone's like coping method is different. So you can't be like, if you do A, B, and C, then you have PTSD because you might have D, F, and L, and that is what is causing. And so it's like a combination and it's, it's really a challenge, I think for like, for me as an individual to go and get help because I knew there was something wrong, but it didn't seem as bad as what other people were facing. And it wasn't until I finally went and got help that I was like, oh, there is something wrong. And I there are ways to get better. Before I just kind of was like, well, there must just be something wrong with me. And this is how life is. But I couldn't find the words or put it into words or really get help until I started. I, I did group therapy. And then I did one on one therapy. And both those things really helped me in my mental health journey. But it's what my experience was so different than like the stereotypical that was kind of stopped me from getting help for so long. Well, thank you for sharing that. I'm so happy that you finally um, got to that place where you said, Hey, you know what? I could use some help here. And that's, you know, it's everyone's journey. They have to want to get help before help really even starts to make a difference for them. And that's one of the biggest lessons I learned out of everything from the Pentagon to the work I'm doing now. And you are 100% correct. There is no one cure for everybody because we are all individuals, all have different experiences. And even if we had the same experience, we're all going to interpret it differently. And that's, you know, when professionals who are trying to help recognize that, that's where they make the most positive difference on a journey to help someone get better. Yeah, for sure. When I first got home from Afghanistan, I tried to get help. And the therapist, instead of talking to me and like letting me work through it, was like, oh, you just got home. You'll be fine. And that was also part of why I didn't go get help because I was told that I was fine right when I got home. And it took years before I like was finally to the point where I was like, no, I'm not fine. There's something wrong. And I was able to get the help that I needed. And I found that a lot of times when people don't feel like they feel like something's off, but they can't explain it, people will be like, you're fine. It's all right. Just get more sleep or go for a run instead of stopping and saying that they like, maybe we should listen to what this person is saying. My friend had postpartum depression and she kept saying weird things that didn't make sense to me. But I was just like, she would be like, I can't do that. And I'm like, yes, of course you can. And it wasn't until after she told me she had postpartum depression that everything kind of clicked. And so it kind of changed like how I listen to people and how I interact with people, especially close friends, when they start saying stuff that doesn't fit in line with what they normally say, I now realize that's a clue and that I need to ask more questions and not just be like, you're okay, because that's what happened to me. And it really hurt me in my journey. Wow. That's, that's amazing. Um, I'm glad that you were able to discern all of that. How many years was it from the time that you, the, that professional said, oh, you're just fine. You just got home, you know, get some sleep or whatever until you finally got some help. It was about six or seven years. 
I think, between when I went to get help and when I got help. Wow. Yeah. Well, um, I, yay for you getting help. And, you know, I'm sure during those six years, you were scratching your head many times going, mm, it still doesn't seem right. So uh, thank goodness your journey got you to where you are now. And I love that you say that you stop and listen, because most times that's one of the biggest things that can be begin the journey for someone that's, you know, ready to get some help is that someone's actually listening to them and not just nodding their head and spending a couple minutes and patting them on the back, tell them they'll be fine and move on. So thank you for your caring spirit. Thank you. It's been a long journey, but I think my experience has really helped me to have a platform to talk about it. And like, that's why I'm so passionate about it because it happened to me and I want it not to happen to other people. And, and then I missed it in my friend and not that I feel guilty, but it just made me realize like, even it, though she wasn't saying like, I feel like there's something wrong. She was just saying things that didn't seem to make sense. And then a couple of weeks later, she's like, I just was diagnosed with postpartum depression. And I was like, oh, now everything you said makes sense because I understand. But on the outside, everything seemed fine. Like I would have never said that she had postpartum depression because we were like going out doing things and it didn't fit the stereotype I had in my mind until she told me like what happened. Wow. Well, I'm, I'm glad that that is she okay now? Yeah, it was. She told me that she woke up one day and it felt like she went from being in a dark room and like the lights were on and she had gotten medication and was about to start taking it. And that was kind of when everything changed. It was like either it was the time of like after she had her baby or just like knowing what was going on helped her. Um, but she is back to normal now. We're not no, back to I'm normal. I'm so glad but- to hear that. Well, you made it, you made a difference whether you know it or not. And I'm sure, yeah, you guys, I'm sure still friends and still talk with each other. Well, she's in California because I, my husband's in the military, so we haven't talked in a while, but we're moving back to California. And so I hope to get reconnected with her, but yeah, I'm a military spouse and veteran. So life's a little crazy. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, it is. I completely understand that. So Let's move past mental health and 9-11 and talk about the rest of your career. And I want to talk also about what you're doing today. So let's talk about post 9-11 and then and any highlights that you want to cover. Sure. Uh, Well, after uh, 9-11, I still stayed at the Pentagon for several years and then went off to the War College. And then lo and behold, I was back at the Pentagon again. It's like I couldn't get away from it which was just fine. I, my last, next to the last job actually in the Pentagon was serving as the protocol director for then the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, General Peter Pace, which hands down was the most extraordinary job I ever had um, and probably ever will have. He was the most remarkable leader and everyone on that team was completely fabulous. It was, um, a lot of it was zero defect. You know, and you know what that is, you know, you, you, you needed to do well because he was in so many visible places and representing all branches of the military. I mean, he's the chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So um, we were on our toes a lot, but it was one of those situations where you wanted to do well. You didn't fear that you were going to collapse under the pressure because everybody was there to support you. And again, because he was such a great leader. So once he departed, uh, Admiral Mullen came on board. And you know, when there's a change like that at, at that level, usually the 
the big leaders bring in their own own team, which is you know which is normal and it makes sense. So as all the key people on General Pace's staff started to be replaced, I was the only one left that wasn't. And I was like, okay, why am I still here? Am I going to still be the protocol director? I ended up being. They, they kept me there and Admiral Mullen hired me as his special assistant for returning warrior issues, which basically meant he wanted to start to figure out what was going on with our military folks um, coming back with these, at that point, we're calling them invisible wounds. And I had no idea what any, any of that was about. I didn't really even know what an invisible wound was, much less know that I was carrying around an invisible wound since 9-11. I was kind of like you. It was like, yeah, I feel kind of funny. And some things make me more nervous now than they used to. But I must be okay. And I have a job to do. So, you know, time goes on then working for Admiral Mullen in this particular job. And what I really found was that I was really enjoying getting away from the Pentagon, getting out to different locations across the United States and talking to our service members who had returned Again, with invisible wounds, and what we're really talking about is post-traumatic stress here. And I, I had an opportunity to really understand that it carried such a stigma at the time. And hopefully now, after all these years, it doesn't as nearly as much anymore. But there was such a fear about talking about that. And a lot of service members who would tell me just horrific things that they had seen and horrific things that they're feeling but then I would say, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to go back and share this with you know the chairman. And they would say to me, if you ask me to tell anybody else this, I'm going to deny it. <laughs> I was like, well, this isn't helpful. Um, but I began to understand why. And so really fast forward through my time before I retired with Admiral Mullen, we really had an opportunity to build a program called Comprehensive Soldier Fitness at the time, which was really facing post-traumatic stress right in the eyes and actually learning how to teach our service members resilience in the face of adversity. And I loved that. It was every, it hit all my buttons on helping people, new ideas, a great way to do this without necessary drugs and pill popping. And I get it. You know, some things are necessary as far as prescription drugs go. I get that. But it was always a head scratcher to walk into a service member's room at Walter Reed or you know, one of the Fisher houses and see service members' rooms and have anywhere from 18 to 22 bought different medications that they're supposed to take a day. I, I don't care who you are. I'm pretty sure that can't be right. And that just, it was nice to be able then to develop this program that would really make a difference. And it's still going strong now. Now it's called, oh, shoot, it's, um, it's a fitness program now. It's a training fitness program um, for mental, you know, for mental resilience. And I just, I love all that. I was actually had an, ability, uh, an opportunity to go to a course at Fort Carson and sit through it and watch these soldiers over a course of 11 days go from being very nervous, uptight, not wanting to be a part of any of this to by the end of it, end of 11 days, feeling more relaxed, speaking about how things are much better at home, their family life is better, they're getting along with their children better because they've learned tools to work through all this. And I was real happy to be a part of that. And that's what I do today. Now, Once since I've retired, um, I created my own organization called This, T-H-I-S, This Able Vet, because I'm not disabled. I'm fully capable. And I go and, and help veterans who are working through the process of wanting to get better and getting back to a state of normalcy for them, not discounting the events that they went through, because that will always be there, but learning how to actually 
cope with what has happened and move on with their lives and enjoy the rest of their journey. That sounds really cool. And it's really neat that you kind of, in a way, accidentally ended up in that job. And then you were like, oh, I love this. And I love talking to people and I love helping people and discovering some of the wounds that you had from your time at the Pentagon during 9-11 and all the different experiences and how it like wrapped together to help you find your path after transition because so many people are lost after transition. And so it's really cool to hear not only that the army and or the military as a, at, a, at large was like, there's something wrong and we need to figure out how to fix this because the whole like, I'm going to tell you, but I'm not going to tell the doctor is something that was definitely a stigmatism that I was under when I got home in 2010, where it was like, you're not supposed to say anything. You're supposed to check all the right boxes, which made it so that the problem on paper didn't look like it was there. But then we had all these suicides and issues going on throughout the military where the numbers didn't match, but it was because of that negative stigma around mental health and filling out the boxes in the right way, which is really the wrong way because they weren't honest. Exactly. Did you ever have a chance to go through the Comprehensive Soldier Fitness Program? No, I, I didn't. I mean, I was in the Air Force. I deployed with the Army, but I, I was with the Air Force. And I went to headquarters after I got home from my deployment. And it was mainly all civilians. And so I think that was probably also there wasn't a lot of focus. It wasn't a unit who was getting ready to go to war or having people come back. It was like 95% civilians and then a handful of military. And it was just a different type of mission focus, which I think was another reason that it was harder to get help. Yeah, that makes sense. It was a completely different environment that most people wouldn't have even understood what you went through. So yeah, I get that. So let's talk a little bit about your transition. It sounds that sounds like the job set you up to start your business, but that doesn't mean that there weren't challenges. Were there any challenges that you faced when you transitioned out of the military? Well, actually, the transition was was easy. I was ready to go. I decided that it was time to retire because I really, I was getting some pushback on the excitement of comprehensive soldier fitness and really listening, like you said, listening to what our service members are saying, not just, you know, check the block and move out. And I, I just had this urge that I, and a, just an intuition, I guess, that I needed, there was something more that I could give and be out there and be a good listener and find some of these non-pharmaceutical ways to help our service members. So again, I was still dealing with post-traumatic stress. I wasn't even diagnosed with that until 2009. So this was eight years of very little sleep, burning aircraft chasing me in my nightmares a lot, and still trying to function in the Pentagon, which I did just fine because you sort of, like I'm sure you did, you just suppress it. You push it down. You've got other things to do, except at nighttime when you're, you know, trying to go to sleep. And then, you know, things just start to bubble up. So by the time I was ready to get out, was like, yeah, number one, I need to figure out how to take care of myself. I, I need to get better and figure out what's going on with me. And so I took almost three years after I, you know, developed my, my company, This Able Vet. I spent three years just not looking to help anybody, but to help myself and really go out and try a lot of these non-pharmaceutical approaches like heart math or neurofeedback, biofeedback guided imagery, emotional freedom technique, tapping. I mean, I just, I went for all of that because I wanted to see how it worked. 
several of those things between neurofeedback, biofeedback, and guided imagery. I did that for three months straight from the moment I got out in 2009, in May of 2009, in August of 2009, was the last time, last time I've ever even had a nightmare about anything that happened at the Pentagon. It's just for me, and again, this isn't for everybody, but for me, though, that was what worked. And so having these other tools in my toolkit to be able to offer to other service members of things to try, you know, one by one to see if it would help. And it's, it's really worked miracles. And it's fun to see, you know, what some people want to try. I, I have ability to actually help these people because I got a really nice grant from AOL and PBS through this thing called the, the Makers I, ha I have the money to help service members that want help. The only thing I ask of them is once that they feel like they're in a position where they are better than they were and in a, in a much better place for themselves is to guide me to the next person they know that needs help. So it's, it's been very rewarding, more one-on-one -on -one than, hey, I can help a thousand people at one time. I really like the individual work and especially when those particular people really, really want to get better. And it's been, I would say, 100% effective on every single veteran that I've had the, the pleasure and the blessing of working with. Yeah. And I think that's so amazing. And I love that you're focused on helping one person because I feel like, especially in today's world, people look at like the numbers and they're like, oh, they're not big enough or we need to help more people. And you sometimes forget that one person is one person and like that one person really matters and you don't need all the numbers or you don't need to be chasing the numbers. You just need to be helping one person at a time and trying to help them in their journey. So if someone was listening and they wanted to get in contact with you or learn more about what you're doing, besides that, I'll put a link to your website in the show notes. What other ways could they contact you? You post that my website, that link, that will have right up front my personal cell number, my email address. Anyone can contact me if they're interested and we can start a conversation and see if, I, if, they, if they want some help and I'm, I'm certainly available, I'm ready to help. Thank you so much for your time and for sharing your experience of serving in the military and just being so open about mental health. This episode's going live the last Tuesday in June, which is June is PTSD Awareness Month and the 27th is PTSD Awareness Day. So I think even though it wasn't planned, it's the perfect interview for this week and a perfect way to wrap up June. So thank you so much. But I always like to end my interviews with what advice would you give to a young woman who's considering joining the military? I love that question. And uh, actually, I got this advice as I was going into the military, actually from uh, a, a male captain who said to me, they actually said two things. He said, don't try and be one of the guys. He said, we don't like that. That it's just, it doesn't work. So for young women going in, it'd be yourself. Don't, you know, try and be so tough and be, you know, unless that's your personality, but just be you. That's the key. And the other thing, and I always love this, and it just made a difference for me. And it's, it could go for men and women, I suppose. But this young captain said to me, always remember the day after thank you. And I had to ask him what that meant, but it has made a world of difference throughout my entire career is that when somebody, you know, I've had to go to, you know, another office and get some help and somebody helped me, I would actually call or go back the next day, not wanting anything, but be able to look that person in the eye, or if it had to be a telephone call to say, man, you know, thank you so much. You really helped me out. I really, really appreciate it. And over the years, I have done that time and time again. 
and it develops friendships. It develops confidence in others who are wanting to help you because they realize the next time you're coming back, you're not, every time you show up, you're always asking for something. Show up with some kindness and some gratitude, and that will make all the difference in the world on the way that you're progressing through your career. Such great advice. Thank you so much for being a guest and being on the show. Oh, you're very welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Amanda. Thanks so much for listening to this week's episode. If this is your first time listening to Women of the Military podcast, I encourage you to go back and listen to some of the other episodes on the podcast. There are so many episodes and stories of women who've served in the military who can inspire you at whatever stage of the journey you're in joining, serving, leaving the military, or just learning about the women who have served in the military. If you want to support Women of the Military podcast, you can go to patreon.com slash women of the military. And if you enjoyed Women of the Military podcast, please leave a review on your favorite podcast app to help the podcast grow and reach more women who are considering military service.